The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 386. 386. For Tuesday, March 20th, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, you send in your cool stuff found. We do our best to answer your questions, share some tips of our own, and together, the goal is to all learn at least one new thing, if not more, every time. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, back in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. All right. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And, and I got to say, 386 brings back such wonderful memories. As yeah, some may know, though, you know, I'm looking at the history here. I didn't think it was that long ago, but... Uh, Assuming we know the 386 was shorthand for a processor that Intel released. Oh, in 1985. Really? The I'm eight, looking eight at the, oh, I'm looking at uh, 80386. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that was the uh, processor that was in the IBM PC AT, right? The XT had a 286 uh, or was the AT a 286? The AT was a 286. Okay. So the first PC was the 8086. Hmm. The 286 was the AT, Advanced Technology. Right. And then the 386 was the next, and then, you know, 486 and, and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, the 386. But that was a big deal when the 386 came out. I mean, that was a that was a smoking fast machine in, in the Windows world, obviously. Um, we never ran, but, never ran Max on 386s. Uh, yeah, well, reading here, and I remember, because I did some dabbling, you know, pro- programming at a low level on it, and I guess the... Uh, the nice thing about this is that it offered a, I think, a flat memory model, which if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But it was a big okay. deal. Okay. Because typically the Intel processors addressed memory in a kind of wacky fashion oh. that aggravated lots of people. And I felt it was the revenge of hardware people and the software people. Okay. Well, but, the, the, it, but that was well the you first... know flat memory model. No, actually I don't. But you said not to worry about it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, the, a flat memory model, basically you can... Uh, you can individually address all the memory without, yeah, well, then we're talking segmentation. Without going into pages well, not, and all that stuff like we had on the Apple II, is that right? Well, they had something called segmentation, which was a, a strange way of addressing memory. And okay. This was one of their first processors that allowed you to directly uh, address all the memory as one Is one that thing. where the whole DMA thing came from, direct memory access? Or am I confusing my my technologies uh, here? No, I'm, I'm getting it wrong, aren't I? Okay. Uh, I try again. I don't want to. Yeah, it's been a while since I okay. did uh, assembly, but it's fun. Huh? My first was sixty five oh two, as I think uh, it was for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. It, it went. It could go as fast. I'm looking on Wikipedia here for this. Uh, the three eighty six could go as fast as forty megahertz. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Think about that. Um, so I am back from all my travels. We had a scheduling snafu yesterday, uh, which is why we're here on Tuesday. But we get to podcast in the morning and it's a nice morning here. And I've actually even got the window open. And uh, so if you hear birds chirping, it's uh, it might actually be birds. Well, it's chirping. spring. Well, it's, it's the first spring. day of spring, right? It, today is the first day of spring. That's right. But I already did my Tom Lehrer thing for this year. So I got to kind of wait till next year to do that again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, However, uh, let's see. So I, really what I want to do first is talk about our first sponsor for this show, which is Bare Bones with BB Edit. Uh, I'm still astounded that you can get a text editor this good for 50 bucks. 
uh, if you had gotten it a couple of months ago, you could have even gotten it for uh, maybe 10 bucks less, but, but for 50 bucks or 49 bucks, uh, this is the, I mean, it really is the king of all text editors. It can do, I use it for so many different things. Uh, it's first of all, it's nice to have a text editor that only does text. It doesn't try to do any, any wacky formatting, uh, that impacts the text. It's just text. So it can be really handy if you've got something from like a word document and you want to paste it into an email, but without all the fonts and formatting and everything, uh, it, you know, you paste it into BB edit and then just copy it out of BB edit and boom, you're there. But that, that, I mean, that only scratches the surface of what this thing can do. When you're used, when you're programming in code, and it really can be any kind of code, be it uh, HTML, uh, which many of us have to deal with, JavaScript, with which probably most of us have to deal with, um, and then if you get into you know nittier and grittier stuff like uh, C or, or uh, really, I think you know, Ruby certainly in there, PHP is in there. When you're programming in these languages, it auto senses what language you're programming in. And highlights the code on screen. It doesn't mess with the code. Like I said, none of this formatting goes through, but it'll highlight things in different colors and uh, and allow you to collapse functions and all of this stuff just to make your editing experience more palatable. And it really makes a huge difference. Uh, the other cool thing is that it can open and save files from remote servers, either with FTP or SFTP. And what that means is you can open a file directly on, let's say you have a website that you're editing, you know, you've given up on, uh, on iWeb, right. And you're, you're editing something. Maybe you've got account some, you know, it's some third party web host and you want to edit your file directly on the server. You can do that. And then when you hit command S to save, it saves it to the server. And if you quit and relaunch, if that window was open, it supports lions whole resume thing. In fact, they've been doing the resume thing long before Lions. So if you're on snow leopard, you can actually use their function called sleep which quits the app, but keeps all the windows. It's exactly, well, not exactly, but very, very similar, functionally similar to, to Lions Resume. And when you reload it, if you had a file open from the FTP server, John, it just loads it from the FTP server. If you had a file open from disk, it loads that, it keeps your windows where they were. Really, really good stuff. So you can check this out uh, at barebones.com. You can download a free trial, which I highly encourage you to do. Uh, and then once you're done with your trial, uh, you know, once you're sold, uh, buy. And it's 49 bucks. So go check it out. Barebones.com. I use it every week. You, you do, huh? Okay. Well, I use, I use it to craft the show notes because I like the features you pointed uh, out is as soon as it knows that it's HTML, it, it uses color coding to, uh, so I, I'm sure that I've formed the HTML properly. Right. That's the yeah, key. Exactly. Yeah. And have you yeah, noticed, tag, the, the, you know, the beginning and the ending tags, but yeah, so I, I, I believe it'll, you know, the, some of them it'll make red and some it'll make blue. And if, if I mistype, then it'll be the wrong color. So visually you can see very quickly that your, your code is not yeah. correct. And, it, and if you've got something, if you've got an element, you can actually double click on either the opening tag or closing tag of the element and it'll select the contents of that element. So you can see immediately, oh, I'm closing this table here. Where's the beginning of it? That's the beginning of it. Um, so that can be a really cool thing too. Very, very visually helpful. All right. So, uh, you know, I was, I was at uh, South by Southwest again last week. Now, for those of you that don't know, South by Southwest is actually three different conferences slash festivals happening simultaneously. Interactive and film basically start off together. Film pretty much runs through the whole thing 
largely because films take a long time to watch and there's lots and lots of films that people going to the film festival want to see. So they need that time. Uh, and then, uh, so interactive runs for the first, uh, say four or five days and then music runs for the last four and a half days or so. All of them have, uh, there's a trade show that runs, um, like a, 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 an expo, uh, how hall it runs with exhibits and booths and all that stuff. There's also, uh, conference sessions that you can go and attend for all of them, music and technology and film. Uh, and, and then there's, you know, all kinds of uh, different events and, and things like that that happen. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've said this many times, but the whole thing sort of, for me, sort of blurs together as one. I, I know a lot of people only go for the interactive part uh, and that's fine, but you really do miss out. For, for example, uh, you know, at the interactive one, I went to some sessions and some of the sessions I've ranted about this in the past. I actually lucked out this year. Uh, a lot of the panel sessions, which I went to, were actually really good this year. Um, and I don't know if I was luck of the draw or if they've actually made it uh, made it better. But uh, but it certainly was better for me. And so, you know, I went to a, a panel session um, that uh, um, I went to one on Google's redesign, which was actually pretty cool. They they re John get this. They got a call. It was actually an IM from uh, from Larry Page, one of the co-founders of Google. Uh, I am this one guy uh, and, and who led this team of like five designers in April and said, I want you to redesign all of Google's services with a consistent design and I want to launch by the summer. And that was it. And the guy, you know, almost had a heart attack because there were a lot of there, Google has a lot of services that they've acquired. So, you know, there's no common or wasn't a common CSS base or any, you know, any common framework or anything like that. And they did it. And, and it was a very interesting process to, to hear them talk about on this panel. So um, uh, one of the things that, that I found very interesting about that as an aside, John, was somebody asked, how long do you wait until you actually start paying attention to people that complain? And they talked a lot about. Um, uh, uh, not fear of change, but, but discomfort, you know, change resistance, essentially. And uh, they said, typically, they said, we wait a week, but you'll see it in two days. People will get used to the new thing, which I thought was was fascinating. So, um, but anyway, that, that panel was part of interactive. I also saw a panel, a panel, a panel. You'll understand why I made the, uh, the slip there, John. With Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, the two founders of Napster, uh, who have a new startup called Airtime, which they're not really talking a whole lot about. But then Sean Fanning went on to be the, the first president of Facebook and now has made a sizable investment in, in Spotify. And, and he was really instrumental in bringing it into the U.S. But that panel happened under the music conference, but it was so relevant to technology and, and what we all are interested in, or most of us are anyway. So it, like I said, it really all bleeds together. And, uh, and, and so if, if you're thinking about going, I highly recommend you just go for the whole thing and then you can see a lot of great bands too. Um, I didn't, I didn't make it to see, uh, to see Springsteen this year because tickets were, um, passes to that. I should say not tickets passes were, uh, very hard to come by, but, uh, but I did see some great bands and, uh, and had a, had a whole lot of fun. So I, at the end of the week, so I highly recommend everybody go to both. Now, as far as geeky stuff, there were a yeah, couple of things. On, yeah. Up. So um, 
it, it was interesting. Uh, for those of you that use SugarSync, keep an eye out uh, in your App Store updates, specifically if you're iPad users, because the, there's some very cool stuff coming very, very soon. Um, and I was hoping that we could talk about it today, but I don't think it's out yet. So we can't. We can. We can talk about the fact that it's coming and that there's a great new uh, interface. But uh, but that's all. That's all we can say, which stinks. Uh, but but keep an eye on that. Seagate. I, I met with them. John, and they've actually got, you know, we've been talking a lot about RAID and uh, not, well, RAID, but but NAS uh, network storage devices, and they've got some great stuff for the Mac um, that we're, that we're going to take a look at here, and I want to try and get some stuff into your hands, too, because I think it would, uh, I think it would be a good thing for you to test, so they have their, their GoFlex, um, GoFlex uh, for Mac drives, uh, which are, they are, um, USB and, and FireWire connected drives that connect to your Mac. And then also they have their, uh, their GoFlex network stuff too, which is, which is really well, cool. Didn't they introduce, uh, I thought they introduced a Thunderbolt version at, uh, at Macworld. Yeah. So that's right. They do. They have a Thunderbolt and that's the cool thing about the, the GoFlex drives is you can take the drives out of the, uh, the essentially the base and plug them into a Thunderbolt base. And now, uh, you get you know the full speed, essentially the full speed of the drives. They were they were showing, um, in fact they they had uh, a couple of drives rated together so that you can a couple of SSDs rated together, and they were getting you know uh, upwards of like four or five hundred megabytes a second, which is pretty fast because you know each drive could do like one hundred and thirty or so with the SSDs. So yeah, it's cool stuff. Um. I spent some time with the folks at, do you have any other questions about Seagate there, John, before we, well, the GoFlex from what I, I gather, it's, it's, uh, I guess it is a proprietary type of enclosure, but it, it you know, the, they offer a multiple docks and multiple devices, but it's all, they, they all have to be, you can't just take any old drive and throw it in the enclosure, right? No, 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 you can, you can take any, oh. you can take any drive, but it has to be, the drive has to be in there. In their, their enclosure, in their enclosure. And then you and then the enclosure kind of plugs into these these like you said, these various docks or bases, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. OK, so so they sell ones that are already in a GoFlex form factor, if you will. Correct. Right? Because I'm thinking they also have I mean, I've seen. Is it them or someone else have a product where you can just take a bare drive and just shove it into the, the uh, or no, maybe that, that that's, that's what I saw. All right. So you have yeah, to add it. something yes. to the drive and then you put it in. Right. Any one of these uh, docking stations, whether it be USB or Thunderbolt. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We'll have to, uh, yeah, we'll it's, have to it's check cool. that out. It's Someone cool else stuff. is offering Thunderbolt. I think that's now three hard yeah. drive vendors that I've seen now. So Yeah, it's good. That's good. Um, so I also met with the folks at Buffalo. And while we're on the subject of NAS, they do. They have their cloud store, which is pretty cool. It actually uses Pogo Plug as its back end. And and for those of you not familiar with Pogo Plug, what that does is it's um, it's a you it was it's a technology that allows you to mount a hard drive on your Mac, and then they've sort of built these servers and and um, and networking uh, not drivers but but uh, networking software that allows you to see that drive from anywhere. It uses your home internet connection to share it, and so the the folks at uh, at Buffalo have taken that to, to the next level. They've embedded that Pogo plug technology in what they call their cloud store. And it's a, a network storage device that uh, uses Pogo plug as its vehicle to share 
on the web, but you can get to your drive anywhere. You can partition it out for time machine, which you could also do with the Seagate stuff, by the way. Um, but, you know, they, they do some cool stuff. Uh, they were showing me how they had you can set specific folders to actually transcode movies and the movies are transcoded so that you can then watch them streaming from your home network to your iPhone or your iPad while you're on the road. So if you uh, and, and of course, you, there, there's also a BitTorrent client in there, so you can actually BitTorrent stuff, have it saved to a folder. And when it's finished, it'll transcode it and then you can you can stream it to your uh to your device, which makes it really easy to watch TV when you're on the road. Something the uh, something the studios need to solve, I think. But uh, but until they do, the cloud store is the way to go. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, but the coolest thing I talked to them about is their upcoming 802.11 AC router. Uh, these things will go in theory. Uh, 1.3 gigabits per second, um, which is which is really fast for wireless. Uh, obviously, uh, it requires 802.11 AC in the client too, and they've got some stuff coming that will allow you to 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 take advantage of that out of the box. Even though your your all your home networking stuff obviously doesn't support 802.11 AC right away, but it's got um, in addition to having uh, a, a, the a, the new AC protocol in this thing that's coming, uh, it's also got 2.4 gigahertz three band, so you get you know up to 400 and I guess 450 out of that thing too if you're doing uh, if you're doing N at the same time. And you know, speaking of five gigahertz versus 2.4 gigahertz, John, they had some interesting stuff to say, um, and it was almost as an aside during our conversation, but. You know, we we all see for at least I, I say we I see the choice between, you know, like in my house, I run a five gigahertz network and a two point four gigahertz network. And I always choose the five. Right. But the interesting thing is that's not always the best choice because five. Has a more limited range in that the further you get away from the base, it drops off speed wise. It actually drops off faster then 2.4 gigahertz will. So if mm -hmm. right at the base, five is faster than, than your 2.4, uh, if you get one room away, typically 2.4 doing 802.11n or whatever it is, is going to be faster than five doing 802.11n unless you have interference from other devices, right? That's the big benefit of moving to five is that you have less devices that are going to interfere, like your microwave and perhaps your cordless phones and all of that stuff. But if you aren't dealing with interference issues, you're actually better off in your house using 2.4 gigahertz for your for your 802.11n stuff. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, John. You, yeah, that's you, what I you found. You, you found that too. Okay. Well, you know, I even found when I um when I looked at the Wi-Fi, which is a directional antenna. Yeah. Unfortunately, the software is not compatible with Lion. I got to get in touch with them and find out what the deal is. Right. Right. Um, but I was doing tests there. I would actually, in certain cases, get 802G going faster than N. So they have a G device, but a focused G could potentially go faster than N. No, I saw it in yeah. my test. I, I, yeah, that's right. Well, and that's one thing that's going to be interesting with um, 802.11ac, because the standard is further along now than the N or the G standards were when devices started coming out. Now, obviously devices mm. aren't out quite yet, but, but I think we're going to see them pretty soon. Um, 
and the um they, they, they were telling me that there's something called beam forming uh, which is essentially a way of focusing the signal on the uh, on the client and that's something that exists in GNN but was not part of the spec so everybody kind of does it differently and if you've got two products that do it the same way obviously if from the same vendor would or perhaps two different vendors might do it the same way then you can take advantage of it but otherwise you can't whereas in the 802.11ac standard beam forming is is official um or at least in the in the draft and so that will make it so that some of this stuff is is better um i don't know yeah so anyway it's interesting stuff i'm looking forward to this uh and you know i love the buffalo people because they they're the ones that have routers that support uh, my favorite third-party firmware called DDWRT, which lets us do all our geeky oh, things nice. that we do. Yeah. Now the, the I, I believe as as it has happened in the past, I don't think the first round of of their AC routers will have it, um, and that's not how they've done it in the past. They've always kind of released like the pro version later that has the ability to go with that firmware. But um, but it should be good stuff. So. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm I, it was, I thought it was really interesting to think about. I, I guess we hadn't had that discussion about 2.4 gigahertz versus five, but uh, but for most people in homes, it seems like 2.4 is better with 802.11n. Now 802.11ac goes so much faster that even if it drops off, it's still going to be faster than n on 2.4, even you know two or three rooms away. So yeah, good, John. Well, I think that's why Apple uh, kind of, uh, though I think you can force uh, 802.11a, but I think that's why Apple and Steve, they kind of shunned A because it did have some uh, limitations, I think, mostly due to the frequency. And as you pointed out, you, oh, know, but you, can you start do- going... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, as you start going to a higher frequency, it tends to be more sensitive or more directional. It's just shorter range. And it, well, it drops off too. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. The the higher the frequency, I think the, uh, yeah, the signal strength uh, for whatever reason drops off uh, or the performance drops off a lot quicker as you start moving away from it. Right. Right. Cool. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, I could, I could talk for hours and hours about South by Southwest in a general sense. Um, but like I said, the interactive conference, it's big now. It's, um, I don't know how many people were there. I don't think they've released numbers, but. You know, it was certainly more people than last year. Uh, but uh, but Austin's a good place to visit. And it, it like I said, I, I found the interactive conference this year more well organized than in previous years. Uh, so that was that was again, it, it may just have been the path I happened to take through it. But I, I don't think so. I think it was I think it was actually they, they put a lot of effort into making sure that you didn't have to run from one side of the convention center to the other in the middle of the day and that kind of thing. So it was good. It was good. But I, I, for those of you that go and, and I know a lot of listeners go for interactive uh, only and a lot of our industry brethren go for interactive only highly recommend sticking around for more because there really is a lot that, that sort of crosses over now, especially those of us that cover Apple because Apple's sort of taken over the world. So that's a good thing. Right, John? Suppose. All right. So, uh, all right. So we had some follow-ups to uh, our last uh, show here. John, you want to start off and tell us about Brett? Yeah, and I didn't know this. I, I'm, I'm glad Brett brought this uh, to our attention here. So, Brett writes, stop. 
<laughs> hey, Dave, John, and Pilot Pete. And he did it in all caps. So that's why I had to yell. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Yeah, that's okay. I used LastPass several years ago, and then LastPass's database was massively hacked, and I was one of an enormous number of victims. I can't remember when it was, but that's when everyone in the security and tech world turned us on one password, which I still use to this day, and syncs my iPhone 4, I touch. Oh, some people would shake their fist at using that term. I touch four iPad two and iMac with no problem. The hack in the LastPass was really bad and was easily preventable. I remember that LastPass tried to cover their butts and delayed letting victims know. I had some of my accounts where bots started bombarding the accounts with password combinations and had to be shut down. It was a disaster. Please research the security hack on LastPass before recommending it. I can't believe Steve Gibson is recommending it now. He was the one appointed me to dump LastPass and use one password. It did happen. It was really bad and I was a victim. Um... I think I'll cut it off there. Okay. Well, that's not good. Well, I looked into it. Um, so, so here's what happened. So they noticed, so the LastPass people, and it happened around 2010, um, noticed, uh, I thought, I, or 2011. I think around, it was about a year ago, right? Yeah, about a, about a year ago. Okay. Um, so they noticed uh, some unusual network activity. And as it turns out, what happened is that as far as I can tell, reading the articles, we'll link to a few of them. But what happened is that someone got into their database and, and was able to pull the data out. Though the basic problem here, though the gist of their problem. So one, their network was compromised and people were able to get some of the data. Um, that in and of itself is bad. But the, the, the way that the problem was described here is, and I want to offer this advice here. Okay. So part of the problem here is that any of these systems, and, and there are a lot of them, so whether you're talking Apple's full disk encryption or LastPass or even Dropbox or pretty much any uh, anything that stores your data somewhere and, and has some security protecting anyone from just seeing it, yep. they all hinge upon you using, uh, now in the case of LastPass, a master password. So when okay. you log in, yeah, fair enough. you log and, and and the same applies again. That's why I'm mentioning that, that this isn't exclusive to them. So so I'll certainly fault them for someone getting into their their system. Of course. But part of the compromise a part of the compromise from what I can understand with them is that it, it, just getting the data itself wasn't enough. What also happened is that once you had this data uh, and what they encourage people to do is to change their master password. So any system that you use, um, you know, some of the data is probably easily guessable, like with LastPass and Dropbox and a few others. One piece of data is your email address. That's typically your account name. And that's pretty easy to find out. That's the security true. of any of these hinges on you using a good uh, whatever you want to call it. We'll call it the master password, which is the password that uh, protects and uh, should or, or could be part of what encrypts all the other data. Now, if you have an easily guessable master password, and I think this is the part of uh, of the compromise here, is that if you have a master password that's a dictionary word, um, then it sounds like those accounts were compromised. The data that was obtained was compromised in that fashion. So Got someone it. did a brute force attack. So what they encouraged people to do, uh, and it sounds like it didn't happen quickly enough, was they encouraged people to change their master password and also make it something... Um, and the advice here is, you know, if you're going to set a password for something, absolutely do not use. And it's known as a dictionary attack because the, there are utilities that will do this. They will take every word in the dictionary and try to use that as a password. So absolutely right. do not use a word that you can find in the dictionary as the only portion of your password. And the best strategy for a password is to use a combination. Now, some people will force this. And I think a lot of these systems will do that now. Uh, you want to use a combination of letters, 
numbers and probably some special characters, uh, you know, on the top, uh, you know, whether it be a, a dollar sign or whatever, the characters when you shift on any of the numbers. So okay, that's yeah, yeah. the best strategy. And probably the longer, the better, uh, as long as it's not so complicated that you can't Now, you know, it. I wish Pete was here because he he actually relayed something. And I think you heard about it in the same, uh, not the same episode, but on the same podcast, the Steve Gibson's Security Now, that he heard, and I hope I get this right. Well, if I didn't, someone will correct me, perhaps even Pete, uh, that really it's the length of the password that matters the most, even if you have a character that repeats you know, if you've got a 25 character password, if you have a character that repeats 23 times, that's going to make it just as secure as a random password um, with with, you know, a random beginning with a random end. Whereas if you have a, you know, a different beginning and then, you know, the, the last two thirds, uh, you know, what? you're right. No, I just found an article here. Yeah, I read okay. across this. All right. So, so in general. All right. So one strategy is. What I mentioned, which I think is acknowledged as a good strategy. Sure. So, well, the, the bad the, again, don't use just a word that can be found in the dictionary. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just found an article here. So, so you're correct, Dave, in that password length. Uh, it's been found trumps complexity. Right. OK. But yeah, <laughs> much better way of saying it than, than I was saying. Yeah. So making it longer is better than making it more complex. Right. And, and there's, two, as, there's two reasons for that. Number one. No one knows how long your password is to begin with. And right. and then number two, they would have to guess every character in that password, even if all of those are the same. That's right. Yeah. So cool. um, and then th so, there was actually a follow up from uh, Steve. Is it Steve Gibson there? Um, yeah. Well, he actually did a follow up saying, OK, you know what happened was bad. But he basically echoed what I said is that unless you chose a weak master password, then there's probably nothing to worry about. So it sounds like he, he acknowledged that, yeah, they had a breach. And if you had a bad password, then you may want to change it. And that's another thing, you know, it may be good practice to just for whatever systems you're on to change the password in general. And some, you know, oh, especially in an enterprise setting, uh, they actually enforce this a lot of times. But when I was in an enterprise setting, they, they would make us change our login password every three months or so. You know, that's a really good point. It's a painful thing to think about, but that's an excellent point. You, you know, I, I wanted to uh, rewind a little bit here, John. You were saying that uh, uh, as you were describing kind of all of these services in aggregate, you were saying that hopefully this master password is part of what encrypts the data, not just um, is your your gateway to get in. And I don't think any of these services use that um if I'll, I'll i'll go through a couple of them dropbox definitely does not dropbox all the data is encrypted with their encryption key um and all that happens when you log in is that you are given access to your data which is then decrypted using their decryption key or encryption key the same is true of SugarSync. the same is true of mosey and carbonite and uh, backblaze out of the box. But if you want to, you can use your own encryption key. Uh, and then obviously it's not using theirs. And, 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 and the way I describe this is it, it I, I use the terminology. It's secure until a subpoena, meaning that if let's say uh sugar sink is subpoenaed for your data, they don't need to know your password. They don't need to hack your password. They have the encryption key and they can, Decrypt it. Now, 
I actually mentioned this to Sugar Sink because I ran into them at, at South by Southwest last week. And I, I told them that I used it. And they said, you know what? That that phrase, secure by subpoena, is absolutely right. What they would like to point out uh, is that they've been subpoenaed four times and their lawyers have defended it four times and they have never once turned over anyone's data. So. But OK, but that's a good point. I, I mentioned that because systems, uh, secure systems that I worked on long ago did use um, well, the and, password and they do material. Like, like and, you, and you make a good point is that if you want your data to be unsubpoenable, then you encrypt it before you send it to any of these guys. Right. Or like I said, with Backblaze or Mosey or Carbonite or CrashPlan, you can choose to use your own key. The, the problem, of course, is. If you lose that key and it's going to be a big, long series of otherwise unintelligible data. Uh, if you lose that key, it doesn't matter how much you whine and and cry and plead. They cannot decrypt your data. So it is useless if you lose that key. So that that's the that and that's why that's part of why these services do it. The other reason is it makes it a whole lot easier for you to access it from your iPhone or your, you know, your, your mobile devices, because you don't need this, this key to be portable. Um, the same is true. I believe for file vault Two. file vault two has a key. It is unique to you, but you're, but then most of us store it in our keychain, which is then unlockable by any admin account or really any account on the system. So, uh, and, and those, you know, your admin passwords are not part of the key. The admin passwords unlock the ability to use the key to get at your data. So it's, you know, there Good you point. have it. Yeah. But to wrap it up, this, uh, tweet that I found from Steve, he ends up by saying, I still recommend LastPass. So, so their implementation short of people hacking into their network, um, sounds like he, he still believes that it is done correctly. Fun security talk though. This is good. Uh, yeah, right. I, I, I oh, actually did file vault a little while ago. I don't yeah. know if I mentioned that. Yeah, but, uh, I, yeah, it was know. pretty painless. Uh, did, uh, you know, you set a password, they give you uh which you probably should take a picture of or a screenshot or something and hide it away. But they give you uh what I think is the encryption key or, or yes. recovery key. That's right. Yeah. It's a big, long hex thing. And they say, all right. Uh, and by the way, do you want us to, to hold on to this for you at Apple? And, uh, and then you got to answer some security questions for them to, uh, to give it to you. That's right. Apple will store your key on their servers. Again, making it susceptible to subpoena if and when that day would ever come. So, but it, you know, remember if you're being subpoenaed for your data and, and they actually succeed in, in getting that, it's probably because you did something wrong. So, you know, you got caught is what it is. <laughs> That's, what, you know, so let's bear this in mind. Um, so we had a discussion about how to copy the or how to share the path to a network drive uh, on show 384. And we got uh, we got a couple of responses that I wanted to share. Number one is from Alexi, and he found something for 99 cents in the Mac App Store called ready for it. Copy path. And it's a uh, it's a little system menu bar widget lit thing that drops down and you can copy the URLs. You can copy the paths uh, right from whatever you've got selected. So and it puts it on the clipboard. And then, of course, you can paste that into your email and all that stuff. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then Eric found something called for free called copy file path. And uh, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, too. It um, I believe that actually works as a, a right click style thing. Um, so 
there you go. That's your, uh, that's copy file path. Yeah. You just right click or control click uh, on anything and you can copy the, the file path or, or the URLs and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. So it's still, it's still a big shortcoming uh, in the OS, I think. And you, you know, what's funny though, is that the, um, yeah, I guess the whole thing that we noticed is the behavior is that the aliases, which, you know, I thought was the right answer, but it wasn't, at least if you paste it into an email, is that the aliases themselves are small. It's just that mail, for some reason, thinks that it should it should resolve it to the, the whole file, which to me is actually kind of, I, I don't know why, why mail makes the assumption that you, you want to uh, send the whole file when you bring the alias over. Yeah, yeah, I know. Or the whole folder heaven forbid if you've got an alias of a folder i mean my goodness that could that could be a bad thing um you know lastly in the uh in the follow-ups and and tips department for today uh text expander it was before I, I meant to mention this before i left uh they fixed it and and everybody's saying what, what are you talking about dave there was this problem on, especially on Lion with Text Expander, that if you were running Text Expander and you opened a text field and started typing before that field was ready, you would get this jumble of characters that was everything you typed out of order. And it was a really frustrating thing for those of us that experienced it. And I know a lot of you actually stopped using Text Expander because, as it turns out, it it was, at least in, in many cases, caused by, by having Text Expander installed. Uh, they have fixed that. In the most recent version, whatever the most recent version of text expander is as of uh, as of today, the beginning of spring here in 2012. Uh, and it totally solved the problem. I've been using it for like a week and a half and and it's been brilliant. So uh, I wanted to share that with everyone, because uh, if you're a text expander user, specifically, if you were and stopped using it because of this, you can now come back. So there you go. No, I got a quick cool stuff found. Oh, yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this actually was based on a question that, that we had gotten from someone, and I don't think there is a good answer to it. So I, I provided some information on how you could get this to happen. And the whole thing revolved around email read receipts. And I think a number of years ago, most of the email clients out there, and certainly the standards support this. So I think what's happened is that the, the choice to do this is generally no. So, so in the email standards, there is a way where you can ask someone, please confirm that something was read. The thing is, is that a lot of the mail clients right now, including Mac OS 10 mail can just choose to ignore that. Okay. And I think that's what happens. So, so for the most part, open standard email systems uh, don't acknowledge that someone has read something uh, proprietary ones. Like I think uh, outlook and, and some others uh, can do this, but I found something uh, an article that I'll link to here. And there is a way to kind of coax Apple mail to ask someone to acknowledge receipt. And basically you go into the terminal uh, and it, and it's a, there, there are two ways. One, you can see if anything's set here and you say default space read space com.apple.mail space user headers. And you can see if there are any custom headers to find uh, for your mail messages. Okay. And then they also give, and I'll link to the article. I won't read the whole thing, but the, the gist of what you can do is you can also write a value to this key or P list file. I guess that's what's happening. Right. And what, what the, the header's name is, is it's called Disposition Notification 2. And what happens is that if the header with that name appears in your outgoing message, the receiving server may acknowledge it and send a receipt to you. And oh. the reason I say may is what I noticed all of a sudden. So I, I, I tried to address this question. I did this, and I actually set one of my email addresses as the recipient of this disposition notification. 
And then all of a sudden I noticed I was getting read receipts kind of randomly from, from certain people that I sent emails to. Huh. And I was scratching my head and I'm like, why are they sending me read receipts all of a sudden? And then it came to me, oh, because I put this header asking them to. And it seems for the most part, I mean, some of them, I would just get an email back saying, yeah, this person read your email. Sometimes I would get an email back with an attachment that had even more data in it. And it seems to be something that's specific to Outlook, which is why I mentioned Outlook. So, so I think what happens is certain mail servers are set up to say, oh, yeah, one, one was clearly from an Outlook server and another was from a BlackBerry. Because it had the word BlackBerry in it. Yeah. So I don't know if the if these people are, are seeing that I'm asking for. The, I'm, I'm going to leave it set here because I'm, I want to collect more data on this. But um, I'm curious if anybody else wants to try this out here. It's just an interesting uh, anomaly in that, uh, again, it's part of the standard, but people usually ignore it. Uh, but I'm seeing some servers are acknowledging it. I think what's even cooler is that you stumbled on a way of adding custom headers to every outgoing mail message. I mean, obviously, you can use that custom header to do this and and it, and it works, but you can put any custom header you want. And there are other things I, I you know, I, um, uh, yeah, this is this is going to be one of those things that as I'm driving in my car, I think, oh, wait, I could put a custom header in to do X and then we'll we'll share that in the show. But I think that's cool. I had no idea that existed. Well, you know, I've seen these also. I think some people use this if you look. So so typically mail just shows you a subset here. But if you go into a mail message or, or at least an yeah, Apple's mail point. app and you say view. So this is getting kind of geeky here, but I think it, it's fun sometimes to look at this. So if you go to view and then message and then say all headers. A or lot of or times, even can, better raw source. Oh, well that yeah, that that's crazy. <laughs> uh, well, it's better I mean, to look at the I don't know. You can look at the headers both ways. You're right. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. sometimes you'll see. So this may be just to see what's in there. But sometimes I'll see custom headers indicating that the message has been scanned for viruses or who to contact if you think it's spam. Right. Because you can put pretty much anything in there. But, but normally mail app, and I think a lot of mail apps only show you the standard one, which is, you know, to, from, the date, the subject. I think that's really about it. But the other stuff uh, can could be useful or you could hide secret messages and, you know, be a spy or something. I don't know. Okay, so I have a... Um uh, there, there are, there is a way, uh, let me, let me make sure I get this right. Um, oh, maybe not. I think there's a way to, to change what mail shows you as the default headers. I think, I think, I think, um, well, let me look here. No, maybe not. No, you can change the list of headers that you can filter by, but that does not change what appears. So, never mind. Never mind. I thought there was a way to do it. Uh, and Oh, so if you want to change the uh, headers that you can filter by, like, for example, let's say you want to take every, this would be a great one. You want to take every message that has a uh, request for a return receipt, so that is using this disposition. Um, what's what's the header called, John? Uh, hold on. All right. <laughs> uh, All right. You look it up. I'll, I'll walk people through the path. So what you do is you go into rules and you go to edit. Uh, you highlight a rule and choose edit. And then uh, in the first section where you're setting the criteria that you're uh, basing the rule upon, uh, you and now this isn't so sorry. Mail preferences rules. Select a rule, choose edit or say add new rule. 
Uh, go all the way down to the bottom. Now, normally at the top, you have from to CC and subject. Uh, you can go all the way down to the bottom and choose edit header list. And you can add anything you want here. Uh, so you could add, John, the name of that header is disposition dash notification dash two TO, right? Right, for TO, not, not the number two. Letter T, letter O. Yeah, yes. got it. Okay. So you could put that in here and then you could filter it and say, look, you know, uh, contains and, and you could, you know, say contains whatever. It contains an at sign would actually be the best thing because then you'll know that this header exists and it contains an email address in it. And you could then filter on that stuff to see who is looking to get notifications from you, even though you're not sending them. So that uh, that would be yet another way to uh, to use this. So there you go. You could highlight them in a different color, you know, flag them as nosy people, whatever it is. Cool. All right, John. Um, so, you know, I. Uh, I always use note taker HD on my iPad to. Uh, to manage the agenda for the show, because I can write on it and it essentially takes the place of me printing an agenda every week and then throwing it away. So it saves paper. And it also works really well when I'm on the road. And and I'm doing that today. But the one difference, John, is I'm doing it not on uh, my iPad 2, but I'm doing it on my the new iPad, whatever we call this. The iPad third generation, I think, is the uh, is the right way to, to to do it. It it arrived while it actually arrived at home while I was at South by Southwest. And uh, and I set it up the other day and uh, and I want to talk about it. But while we're on the subject of getting a new iPad, I do want to talk about our second sponsor, which will potentially help you fund that purchase by buying your old iPad from you. And that is Gazelle at Gazelle.com. They are in the business of buying electronics from all of us, and they make it really easy and really fun. What you do is you visit Gazelle.com, and I'm going to do it now. And you go there and you put in your device. Now, iPads are pretty popular, so you can actually select an iPad right from the menu on the screen. And... Then it asks you, okay, so what kind of iPad are you going to sell? Well, my old one was an iPad 2, 32 gig Wi-Fi. I choose that. Okay, it tells me for 220 bucks, if it is good with visible signs of use, but actually works, they'll give me 220 bucks for my iPad 2, 32 gig Wi-Fi. If I take it as an Amazon gift card, I get an extra $11 because I get an extra 5%, so 231. If it's flawless, They'll give me 240 and they say flawless is no noticeable flaws, zero scratches and no dust under the glass. So they'll give me 240 or an extra 5% on top of that. And if it's broken, let's see, they'll give me a hundred bucks. Doesn't power on cracked screen, missing parts. So, uh, and what's cool is they evaluate it when you get it, they send you a box, uh, and, uh, and you pack your stuff up and, and send it off to them. They pay the shipping and when they get it, they evaluate it. And if they uh, if their assessment is different from yours, either better or worse, they'll let you know. And then you can choose uh, whether to take their offer or have them send it back again. No cost to you. So uh, so if you've got an iPad or really any electronics to sell, check out gazelle.com. It's great for that stuff that you've got kind of sitting on the shelf. The old iPod you never use. Uh, you know, if you can turn that into a couple of bucks, why not? Uh, so gazelle.com is the place to, to do that. So John, I mentioned that I had 
a Wi-Fi iPad. With this new one, I actually got a, a Verizon uh, LTE-capable iPad. And I did that because I wanted to have, I have an AT&T cell phone, so I have AT&T data available to me pretty much wherever I am, as long as I have my phone with me. And I figured I'd go this way and that way essentially have uh, Verizon data available to me wherever I am. And that should cover my bases. And the beauty was uh, after I ordered it, we all found out that the Verizon iPads, but not the AT&T ones yet, uh, will support wireless hotspot. And it works great. I turned on my I activated my Verizon account, which actually was really easy to do on the iPad. And uh and 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 then I told I turned on the hotspot in preferences, and then I was able to connect to it. And you can connect via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, and it just uh, it just worked. Now I'm not in 4G here at home, but I'm looking forward to the next time I travel and I can test these 4G oh. speeds. Yeah, we had 4G had 4G in Austin, and I actually used uh, I didn't obviously didn't have the iPad with me, but I had a Verizon LTE. Uh, MiFi that uh, that they had loaned us for when Bob uh, Levitas went out and did the uh, app covered the Apple event and uh, and the, I mean the speeds you get with that thing are crazy you you can get you know upwards of ten megabits upstream sometimes it's just nuts uh, the speed you can get with that the that four G LTE on Verizon it's you know it rivals your home network speeds way faster than the clear stuff way faster so. Definitely worth checking out. So I'm looking forward to uh, to playing with that. But uh, so that that obviously was a new feature to me, and the 4G uh, will be will be fun. The Retina display. I, I'm still so I should note that on my iPad 2, I always put an anti glare uh, shield on it because I prefer it that way. I have not put one of those on this yet. I want to test it for a couple of days without you know, with just the screen as it is. And then I'm, and then I will put an anti-glare shield on it, but man, you know, all the reports that you've heard are true. This screen is, it's, I mean, it's a lot like moving from the, the, uh, you know, the iPhone before it had retina uh, into the iPhone four, which has the retina display. It's, um, you know, the pixel, the pixel depth is deeper than you can see with your eyes. So it, you know, it, it just looks like, it just looks like it's supposed to look. It's good stuff. Have you played with one yet, John? No, I'm, no. I'm still iPadless. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if you'd gone down to your Apple store. Uh, games on this thing are fast. I was playing Infinity Blade over the weekend um, when I got home. And it, I mean, it looked it looked like I was watching a movie. It, it really was that good. I mean, it was it was really impressive. Well, I hear they get uh, they get a little toasty, too. More than one person has noticed. Uh, I think we put up an article about that. But yeah, more than one person has noticed that the. Uh, uh, aluminum, I guess, uh, but the metal case, uh, tends to be, uh, is a little warmer than people recall on the two. Yeah. I think the Delta was about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not, which is not insignificant. I mean, that, that you, you'll definitely feel obviously, you know, if it's 70 degrees outside versus 60, you're going to notice, or if it's 40 versus 30, you're going to notice. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to take my, uh, take my heat gun. I have, I have one of those infrared thermometers. And uh, so I'm going to compare and contrast the two to see if I really? notice any difference. You don't have one of those? Dude. An infrared thermometer? Oh, dude. This is the best toy you never thought you needed. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. Forget about the iPad 3. Th- this is, this, these infrared thermometers are awesome. 
Uh, they're instantaneous. They're like a little gun. And you point them at something and they've got, uh, they typically have a little like laser pointer. So you know what you're, you're pointing at. Uh, it's, it's awesome. I, I bought one just this past year. I've always sort of lusted after them, but they used to be like a hundred bucks. And then when we were putting new windows in the house, I wanted to prove to myself that these new windows were going to work better. So I thought, well, now's the time to get one of these things. And now they've come down. I think I bought it for like 12 bucks and, uh, and it works flawlessly. And so you, uh, you aim it and you pull the button and pull the trigger rather. And it tells you the temperature. It's got a little digital display. And as you move it around, it shows you the temperature. So I would aim at the wall and then I'd aim at the window oh. and, uh, and see the Delta with our old windows versus our new ones. And it's like, it was night and day. So, I mean, we had these old windows that were like single pane, you know, R zero rated, you know, stuff from, from like the late sixties. So, uh, so it made a huge difference, obviously. Oh, no, look at this. Yeah. No, I just did a quick Google and, uh, well, I found one here. I don't know if it's the highest quality for 13 bucks, but non-contact temp gun handheld laser IR thermometer. That's all you need. Okay, so based on uh, all right, so based on the uh, uh, infrared radiation, it'll tell you what the temperature is. Yes, nice. and 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 so now that we can get a little geeky about this, um, the way it works is, and this is obvious once you think about it, it works in a cone pattern. So the closer you are, the more specific it is on the point. Even if you're ten feet away, it's still gonna your laser point is going to be a specific dot because that's how laser pointers work. But the temperature is actually sensed in a cone. So and it, it explains it in the box. But I think at, at like six feet away, you're at about, you know, four inches wide. And it, and obviously, if you get further than that, it, the, the cone just, you know, the, the, it gets wider and wider. But that makes sense. Right, John? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll put a, I'll put a link to the one I got. But uh, I, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, useless stuff. Uh, yeah, I was dealing with that the other day. So I got some, not, not nearly as nice a toy, little tangent here, but, uh, <laughs> no, I was in home Depot the other day and I had a gift card that I had to spend and, uh, they had some really cheap led bulbs. They're coming down. Oh, uh, yeah. well, in, in our case, the state subsidizes, uh, yep. certain models. So they're very cheap. So I got is it the state some. or is it your power company that subsidizes them? Uh, it's a state site that mentioned, actually, I think it's a, it's a fee that's collected by the power companies that then goes to a state okay. initiative that then, because okay. yeah, I mean, when I went certain bulbs would have a, you know, a sticker saying, you know, thanks to Connecticut energy, blah, blah. Right. So, yeah. I think it's actually a fee that's collected by the power company. And then they in turn offset the cost of some of these bulbs because the LED bulbs are typically very expensive. <clears throat> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got like these, these two, uh, for one fixture, uh, all dimmable, but I got these two, I think 40 watt equivalent. They were yep. like eight bucks each, Yeah, which for an led bulb is cheap. And then I replaced my floodlights and those are a little tougher because they were a uh, flood lamp sized, but, uh, even those were 20 bucks each. The thing is they, they last for like 50,000 hours. I think that's the, the big advantage versus the CFLs is that the life is very, very long. The, the power draw is about the same, but no, they're nice, nice and bright. Cool. They're coming down because I think the CFL is the problem with those. Is one the ballast may uh, not? Well, that that's what happened. Is I bought some and the ballast was too big, so um, oh, it didn't yeah. screw into my floodlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, they let me bring it. They, they actually refunded it. Home Depot did. They were that's cool. About that even though I well, it was in one of those stupid blister packs. I hate that stuff. Oh yeah, you need the you need a laser torch to open those things up. All yeah. right, but yeah. They were so, good about taking it back, but LED bulbs are, are I think the future. All right. Um, so I gave you a link to the one that I bought, John. It's now 15 bucks from, from Amazon and they'll ship it to oh, you wow. prime. 
But uh, but it's awesome. I bought them. I bought them for all the the men in the family for Christmas gift, and everybody opened it up, and they were like, "What is?" This? And then as it, they didn't even finish saying, "What is this?" And once they figured it out, it was like they couldn't stop shooting it at things and, and checking, you know, the temperature of everything. So it's awesome, and everybody loves them. So I highly recommend getting one of those. I know it's an expensive show to listen to, folks, but uh, but but this stuff is cool. Uh, so anyway, uh, back to the iPad three, um, the camera on it. Is is I mean, it, you can use the camera now, whereas previously it was like, why did they bother putting this stupid camera on here? So that's good. Uh, cases. This is the question everybody's been asking me. Do my old cases fit from the iPad 2? And the answer is mm, not really. Uh, they typically if you have a case that you can just slide it into and it's sort of a flexible case that might work. But even then, it's probably going to be a tight fit. Um, if you have a case that is a, a snap on case, it's going to be a really tight fit. And in most cases it won't work. And the, it's interesting because it's only 0.03 inches difference, but, but it's about 10%, right? We're going from 0.33 to 0.36 or 0.34 to 0.37 inches or something. But that 0.03 inches makes a difference on those cases. Like my favorite, my spec, the the mag folio doesn't work, unfortunately. But they're, you know, they're, they're coming out with new stuff. They, uh, I talked to them at, at, uh, at the show last week too. And they said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It won't work, but get new, you know, we'll have new ones. So I think that's all I got to say. Do you have any questions about the iPad three, John? No, I'm still, still not, uh, I heard they sold the boatload. Yeah. 3 million of them over the weekend or something. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. In addition to, uh, announcing, uh, something that made many Apple stockholders happy. I told you that I, I don't know if we discussed this, but I knew they were going to pay out a dividend. I mean, you can't sit on a hundred billion dollars in cash and not give some of it back to the, uh, to the investors. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, they're not giving that much back. No, it's actually, I'd looked at it. It's like point oh point oh five point point four or point five percent. Yeah. So yeah, as far as a dividend, it, it, it's pretty pathetic, but it's, right. It's doing something with the money in eh, the stock buyback, which uh, it's yeah. to shut people up that were complaining that needed a dividend. Yeah, well, they shut me up. Thank, thank Good. you, Apple. There you go. Thank Tim. <laughs> Good. That was it. It was just to shut you up. <laughs> That's all. Hey, uh, I I know we're we're running uh, short on time here, but uh, only because we've had so much content already. But uh, let's go through. Let's throw, go through a couple of these questions. What do you think, John? Go. go let's go. Let's start with Brian. Are you ready? Uh, Brian, Brian, where? Brian? Questions. See in the agenda where it says questions with the capital U because I didn't get my hand off the shift key in, in time. So it says capital Q, capital U. Ah, and there we go. I'm sorry. T-I-O-N-S. Oh, yes. Okay. The dotted sorry. line under it. Am I done vamping? Can you go? Oh, you're good. Okay, okay. good. Brian writes, gentlemen. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Uh, love your podcast and I listened for a long time. That's nice too. Thank you. Okay. I have a question about an external drive that is being used for time machine. It is a two terabyte drive and my time machine is only using 600 megabytes. It has been running for about six months. What I would like to know is if it's possible to repartition the drive to a one terabyte partition for the time machine and a one terabyte partition that can be used as an additional drive. Is this even possible without having to completely reformat the drive? And as far as I know, the answer is Yes. That I believe since OS, uh, with a caveat here, because I, I've, I've tried this recently. Okay. Uh, I think since OS 10.5, uh, in the research that I did here, yeah. 
you can use disutility to do a non-destructive repartitioning of a drive. And then you just go to the partition section, highlight the drive, and then, and then create another one, and it should be able to add another partition. Yeah, you, you grab it and resize it in, the, uh, in disk utility. The only caveat, because I, I tried doing this recently, and what happens, and then what it, what it does is it'll sit there for a good long time, and I think what it's trying to do is shove all the data, especially for a rotational drive, shove all the data into the one partition so it can then create another partition. Here's the bad news. At least when I tried this last, sometimes it'll fail. It'll say something along the times of, you know, recovering space or resizing, or I forget the exact message. But the thing is, sometimes it'll fail. It won't do it. Right. And I think it's just that the data is too fragmented. What I found that will work, and this was the advice I offered, is that if you optimize the drive, like I used uh, um, Drive Genius to uh, optimize the drive, which basically puts yep. all the data uh, puts all the data in nice contiguous areas. Yep. And then I ran this operation. Then it succeeded. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. So, so again, maybe they maybe there was it was a bug in disutility or something, and no. that it wasn't able to to cram all the data in. I mean, I saw messages in the console, and it and it seemed to be making progress. You know, it was like moving data, moving data, and then and then it just threw up its hands at one point, and it couldn't do it. Okay. I think if you have too much, if you don't have enough free space on the drive, then I think that that may be what caused my situation. Yeah, makes sense. I think so. I think that, so. The more free space that you have for the, or, or the smaller you want to make your new partition, the more likely, without having, uh, without having to optimize the drive, I think the more likely it'll be that you, you'll get what you're asking for. But as you start to, to increase the size of the new partition, then I, I think uh, again it'll, it'll fail, and you may have to optimize. So that's my answer. That makes sense. Yeah, and and you know, just to get back to the core of this, the reason Brian would want to do this is that if given enough time and and by that i mean days weeks months time machine will fill up whatever drive you pointed at so if he's got a 2 terabyte drive he's up to 600 megabytes now he will be at 2 terabytes at, at some point because time machine won't delete anything older until it runs up against its storage limits and that in theory is a good thing but uh but it can be obviously not preferable if you've got two terabytes and, and like in Brian's case, he wants to use one terabyte for something else. If you just start willy nilly storing data on your time machine partition, you'll have a problem at some point because time machine will just keep adding to it until you fill up and then you can't put anything more uh, on it that you want without wiping time machine entirely and starting from scratch. So, well, it'll, it'll, well, the point you never want to get to is where it's full because then it does uh, uh, a reclaim, I guess. Well, that, but that's, I mean, that's kind of the yeah. idea is you want to cap it, right? I mean, he wants to get it up to a terabyte and have it start reclaiming its own space. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed, but, I'm just but, saying, once you get to that point, that operation a lot of times can take a real, real, I ran into it once. And I mean, sometimes it could take hours for it to purge the oldest. It'll yeah. warn you. It'll say, oh yeah, you know, there's, there's I don't have enough room. I'm going to purge the old stuff. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, you don't want to get to that point because Wait, then, but, I mean, you're going to get there. I don't understand what you're saying. Um, I mean, you're definitely the, the way time machine works. You will definitely get to that point. All of um, us will. Yeah. Okay. Right. No, I mean, it, I'm with you. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's just how it works. It, it fills it up until it can't fill it up no more. And then it goes back and deletes the old stuff, the oldest stuff to make room for the new. 
Yeah. yeah. I guess what I'm saying is once you get to that point, maybe you, maybe you want to, because then the efficiency drops way off because it's always doing this reclaim. And, and oh. like I mentioned that that's a slow operation. I haven't seen it be that slow. I'm cause I've been living at that. Maybe I'm just used to it. I've been living at that point now for years with my backups there. I mean, they're, they're reclaiming every time they back up. Cause I'm you know, I actually, out. I actually recently had my MacBook pro backup yeah. on the Drobo and yeah. I hope it's not the Drobo, but it actually came up and said up oh, verification, verification failed. I can make a new one. Yeah. I've had that with time capsules too. It just, okay. Happens. So it's just the, the, now in that case, what I did is I definitely plugged into gigabit ethernet on my MacBook pro. Right. Cause it basically had to recreate, recreate a whole new, uh, whole new backup. Right. So with that, you'd probably don't want to do on wireless. Yeah. It made me sad though that it happened. I'm like, yeah. well, why, why is it corrupt? You can try and repair those, you know, so that, I mean, this jumps into kind of into the next question that we have here. But um, if you get to that point where it says your backup is, is damaged and needs to be recreated, uh, you can try and point disk utility or even your other repair utilities at the sparse bundle, which would be living on your network drive. And, and if you mount it, you can then try and repair it just like any other disk. And it, it can, you know, Time Machine will will not do. There are a few heroic efforts that Time Machine will try and do. As soon as it sees that it's damaged, it basically says, I have no more interest in this. Uh, we should we should scrap it and you should move on to something else. But you can try and repair it and then come back with Time Machine. And, it, you know, I've seen it work. So your mile, your mileage may vary, will vary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm trying to think. Uh, let's see. One more question. Uh, I'm trying to think. We're, we're not. We're not going to do that one. Maybe. Uh, maybe Quinn. Is that a good one, John? No, I like. Well, let's do Quinn. Go. Okay. Uh, Quinn writes. I'm having an issue with system preferences crashing each time I attempt to select iCloud or mail contacts and calendars. Also, the mail, iCal, and address book applications all crash as soon soon after I open them. I have no issues accessing iCloud online or from my iPhone. I'm also still having my reminders show up when something is due. I've seen multiple posts on the Apple support forums with the same problem, but have been unable to fix the issue. Unfortunately, I don't have a backup I can revert to. Uh, He says he's traveling and uh, overseas for extended period of time. Uh, He says, I'm using 10.7.3. Any help? Uh, so, yeah, my my thought on this is let's look at what's crashing. iCloud crashes, mail contacts and calendars crash, and then mail, iCal, and address book all crash soon, but not immediately, soon after he opens them. So it sounds to me like this is related to a damaged address book database. And here's why I say that. Obviously, iCloud manipulates through your address book. Mail contacts and calendars manipulate your address book. Mail, iCal, and address book all read your address book data. Mail, obviously, for your uh, for your email address book. iCal for your um, uh, not- event. Uh, you can attach events to to people and send reminders or, or invitations to events, so it reads your address book. And then, obviously, address book reads it. And the fact that your reminders still work tells me that your iCal database is likely okay. So using that theory, uh, I think you've got a damaged address book. Your address book data is in home, library, application support, 
address book. Uh, application support has a space in it. Address book, the address book folder does not. What I would do is make a backup of that folder and then delete the contents uh, and and try again. Try launching address book. Obviously, you will lose your address book data, uh, but at least this will allow you. You've got a backup of it um, for possible recovery. But at least this will let you narrow down. Is that where my problem is? And if so, then you can try re-importing from the, the folder in there. Um, it may or may not work, but uh, but at least that's that's a place to start. Any any thoughts on that one, John? I think that is a good place to start. Okay. We actually, you know, we did get a reply because we had we had a, a question a little while ago and we did get a follow-up that it was successful, but there is a database file within that that area that you told a person was having problems searching their address book. Okay. By deleting that database file. There, there's one file in there that ends with DB. Okay. And uh and recreating that actually gave the person uh re- re- restored the ability to search the address book for for Oh, so that that may be the same problem with Quinn here. Or are you saying that it was Quinn that wrote us back and I just didn't see it? No, I think it was someone Somebody else had else. A, had okay. a had a different problem with address book, but there is this address book file or, or yeah. database file in the in the the place that you mentioned it, that yeah. can get corrupt and then things start. So it didn't crash. It's just the search feature in address book all of a sudden didn't work anymore. Yeah, right, right. I see. And the conclusion oh, yeah. was that this file, by getting rid of it, um, uh, trashing or actually no you you want to put it in move it in the trash then i think uh, uh log out and log back in and then it recreates that file and right yeah so here's something interesting again. in the address book folder so if if in fact this works for you quinn uh go go to your backup inside the folder you're right john there's this file that ends in a b c d d b uh and that's probably the 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 damaged database file mm-hmm. but then there's a a folder in, in there called metadata and it's going to be filled with one entry per address book person near as I can tell. And each of these look to be standard V card entries. So you could import all of these probably just by dragging the contents of that metadata folder into address book. So, uh, so that may actually be your salvageable that that could be your path to, uh, to salvaging all this stuff. So that that's uh that's good stuff. Ah, good thinking, Mr. Braun. I like it. All right. Yes, we have more questions, but no, we don't have more time. But we will be back one week from yesterday. In fact, six days from today, we'll be here for the next regular show, uh, standard show. And then I believe, if my calendar memory is correct, John, we have a premium show coming up this very Thursday. Is that right? Yes, we do. All right. So show 387 premium will happen on Thursday. Show 388 will happen on Monday for everyone here. You can join us over at premium. It's 25 bucks for a subscription. And that subscription will get you access to this upcoming episode. Also, every other premium episode and every episode we've ever recorded. Uh, and you will maintain that for six months. We do two extra premium episodes per month. So, uh, so you'll get access to those and, uh, and then of course you'll get our, our thanks. Cause we really do appreciate it when you, uh, when you come and support us directly. So it is, uh, it is a wonderful thing that we were able to do what we do and we appreciate you helping us do it. Time to tell you how to contact us. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the email address that you can use to email us. I really prefer feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's right. 
feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address. Oh, thanks. Uh, you can send us text, images, screenshots, video, audio files, whatever you like. In fact, you can uh, record an audio file with the voice memos app on your iPhone and send it to us right from there. That's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Uh, you can also call us from your iPhone or really any phone. 206-666-GEEK, which, Mr. Braun, is 4335. That's right. And you can see the lovingly handcrafted show notes, lovingly handcrafted by our own Mr. John F. Braun. And John, where do they find those? Uh, I think you should probably go to MacGeekGab.com, where you will see a list of uh, our most recent episodes. And if you click on the link, you will then see the show notes. Cool. Uh, Let's see. You can Skype us at MacGeekGab. You can find us on Twitter. Let's see. Matt Geekab for the show. John F. Braun for Mr. John F. Braun. Pilot Pete for the guy that uh, is probably being Pilot Pete right now. Dave Hamilton for me. And uh, Mac Observer for all the articles from uh, from TMO proper. Anything else, John, before we wrap this one up? Facebook.com slash MacGeekab, where you will... See notifications of new episodes being posted and the show notes being complete. And you can also ask questions if you want. Yeah, we have good little discussions there. I like those. We would like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this show to AAC for you and for us every week. We'd like to thank Cashfly for providing all the bandwidth. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. And in the podcast marketplace, we have... Yikes. Ah, in the podcast marketplace, we have the, uh, let's see, BB Edit from Bare Bones, as we discussed, Text Expander from Smile, and of course, PDF Pen for iPad from Smile, and Gazelle, with, uh, for, all your, uh, for all your stuff that you're going to sell, and Hover for your domains. Thank you very much, folks. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you in either a couple of days or six days, depending on whether you're premium. Either way, we'll be thinking about you. And so, therefore, don't get caught. Made up.